0: Thank you for downloading this podcast from Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk. For more podcasts and more information on your number one news and talk station, please visit 702.co.za or capetalk.co.za. LeadSA.co.za. Stand up against apathy report the domestic abuse you
1: witness in your neighborhood.
0: The Naked Scientist on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk with Reedy Clubby.
1: Twenty-seven minutes to ten o'clock, and uh, that's it, folks. Our favourite time on a Friday. Every feature is our favourite, isn't it? But we especially look forward to this because we learn so much. The Naked Scientist is with us. Start dialing now. Anything that you're curious about, uh, the human body, technology, science, whatever it is, uh, we'll give it, and we'll give you an opportunity to ask your questions. Chris, hello. Hello, Reedy. Are you well today? Yes, very well, thank you. That's what I like to hear. That's what I like to hear. Let's get on with business then. Uh, Tell us about the fetal immunity uh, that protects females. Females, what's that about?
2: Yeah, I was reading uh, one of the science journals this week and I saw this story and I thought, wow, this is absolutely fascinating. There's a researcher called Xiaoping Zhu who's working at the University of Maryland in America and they've published, this person and their team, some really intriguing data this week about how women protect their genital tract. Now... I mean immunologically, in other words, using antibodies and things. And what's really interesting is that if you look at the secretions that are present there, you find lots of antibodies, and specifically lots of antibodies of a class called IgG, which scientists knew go around in the bloodstream and protect us, but they hadn't expected to see them in that particular site. Mm -hmm. So they were intrigued as to what they were doing there and how they were getting there. Now, obviously the genital tract is an area of the body where you're vulnerable to infection because it's open to the outside world so how do you prevent things getting in that shouldn't well you need a good immune function there so what this group of researchers did was to speculate that the cells there might be producing something which puts antibodies out of the bloodstream and onto the surface of the skin there in order to mop up any foreign invaders and they did a screen across some cells that have been collected from that particular area And what they found is that these cells use a receptor, in other words, a sort of chemical docking station, which is normally used by a baby's placenta to nick antibodies out of a mother's bloodstream and put it inside the baby's bloodstream. And so adult women are using the same gene that they did when they were a baby to give themselves an immunity to move antibodies onto the surface of the genital tract internally in order to to give themselves protection. And why the researchers say this is really important is that now we know this mechanism is there and we know how it works, it might be possible to design much better vaccines so that you can put enhanced levels of antibodies against things including HIV, which would give better protection to people in that particular site.
1: Mm-hmm. All right. Thank you very much then uh, for that information, Chris. And we're moving on to our SMSs and our calls. I want to start with Malcolm. Malcolm, I think you're the guy who held on for a long time last week, Friday. Malcolm in Stanton, is that right?
0: Correct,
1: yeah. Okay, we promised that we'll call Martin this week and line him up Thanks. as our first caller. Welcome, Malcolm. What's your question? Thanks very
0: much. So Chris, I, I um, from time to time travel on a small aircraft, which I think reaches an altitude, say, of between 15 and 20,000 feet, I think. And if the sun's in the right position, you can often see the shadow of the airplane
2: on the ground. And as you get higher and higher, the shadow diminishes to no shadow at all, but you're left with like a, a halo of light. And I just wondered what the explanation of that was.
0: I seem to remember at school there was a, talking about shadows, there's the umbra and the penumbra, and I just thought that might, uh, might be something to do with it.
2: Hi Malcolm. Yeah, so, when you're flying along in your aeroplane, um, say you're quite close to the ground, then that's quite similar to you walking along on the ground. So you have parallel rays of sunlight coming from the sun through the Earth's atmosphere, and they hit something, which then blocks their path, assuming that subject, that subject or substance is not transparent, and it creates a shadow, which is a relative paucity of light rays which are uh, behind the object which is in the way. That's obvious. So if your aeroplane is quite close to the ground, there are sun rays coming in, it's going to block the path of those sun rays before they reach the ground. As you go higher, then what will happen is that you will block out, relatively speaking, less light because some will still get in the way of the aeroplane but then by the time you get to the ground there will be other light which has filled in the area where the aeroplane would have cast its shadow because you've got other light coming in from other sources and bouncing around and reflecting from other places so you don't see the same well-defined discrete shadow because you've got light bending round and coming in from other directions. Um, Why you would see a hazy spot, I'm not entirely sure i'd have to check on that so maybe if there are some optical physicists listening they could give us some help but i think that mainly the reason that you're seeing a, a lack of a shadow is because by the time you've got really high up the amount of light that would be coming back to you from the ground is really really small uh, so you you can't really see the relative difference and there'll be other light falling around the area that would be in shadow from other sources and reflecting back up at you so you don't see a shadow
1: Thank you very much, Malcolm, for the question. And uh, we go to Susan in Kempton Park. Hi, Susan, what do you want to say? Morning. This might be a a little bit of a weird question, but I would like to know why do a person get pimples
2: on their bum? Uh, Hello, Susan. Mm. Um, The reason, unfortunately, you get pimples on your bum is because, I I can't speak for you personally, but we tend to spend a lot of time sitting on it. Um, And what happens is that you are making it harder for Sweat and other secretions that normally come out of the pores in the skin to get out. So it's more likely that debris and other things will clog up the little pore, which is a, a little duct from a secretory gland inside the skin out to the outside world. If you clog up the duct, then bacteria and other things naturally present on the skin can, f- can flourish and thrive. And they do that inside the little gland causing inflammation the immune system comes in to sort out the inflammation and it causes a red spot and when the cells come in to clean up the bacteria and the debris they die in the process producing pus and that's the stuff that comes squirting out if you squeeze a good spot
1: so susan are you happy now <laughs> thank you very much and take care of those pimples let's go to time in Kenton park hi yes good morning good morning um, I've always had a question, whenever you remove the light bulb cover to replace the light, you find that there are moths and mosquitoes which are dead there. I've always wondered, I mean, how do they get in because the, the space is covered?
2: Yeah, I have the same problem. Just look at my light mm. here, actually. I can see loads of corpses in there now. I'll have to go in there at some point. Um, well, we know that insects are strongly attracted to light. Scientists don't know exactly why, but many, many classes of insects are attracted to the light, and we suspect it could be part of their navigation system. So insects we know are sensitive to light and dark we know that they definitely many of them use the sun and in some cases the moon to navigate by and they even link where the sun is in the sky to their body clock so that as the sun goes across the sky and they know what time it is they correct for the movement of the sun across the sky so they always fly in the right direction and monarch butterflies in north america migrate right up from near canada down to mexico thousands of miles every year and back again using exactly this mechanism because scientists have jet-lagged a butterfly to prove that they Mm. go in the wrong direction if they don't have light uh, at the right time of day and therefore given that the insects have this strong urge to follow light they are attracted or they are put off course by bright light sources down here at ground level because they think they're the sun scientists suspect and this causes them to go in circles around them and even to fly right into them. And this means that they inevitably come into contact with the casing and they find little gaps and holes and ways to get in. Um, So they're pretty uh, good at getting into where they shouldn't. And very often you'll find they get in there and then catch fire and stink.
1: Thank you very much, uh, Tammy. And we've got an, an, an SMS here. Somebody wants to know... Uh, naked Scientist, what is the difference between plasma LCD LED, LED TVs? Can you comment on that?
2: <laughs> yes, well, the the plasma was the first generation of these screens. Um, and Panasonic got a really big name for producing very high quality plasma screens. And they are largely being supplanted now by LCD uh, partly on the grounds of lifetime, because the plasmas don't last as long as the LCDs. They still last a long time, but not as long as LCD. LCD stands for liquid crystal display. What's going on in an LCD is that you have a backlight, or you have lights around the side of the screen, channeled in by fibre optics, which shine through pixels, little tiny dots which are either on or off, and you turn them on or off using an electric signal coming from the controller. So you turn on or off all these millions of tiny dots on the screen, which is how you create the picture. With a plasma, you are actually creating an excitation in a gas behind the screen, and that produces either light or not. And the benefit of a plasma is that when it's off and dark, it's really dark. So you get very good black-white contrast. But with LCD, sometimes you get a little bit of leakage through, and so the dark, the blacks, are not as good as perhaps they could be. Um, But that's getting better all the time.
1: Let's go to, uh, is it Sandra in Park Ridge? Hi. Hi, really. Mm. I just want to find out, my daughter's 12 years old, and she's diagnosed with an underactive thyroid. But in the meantime, she's losing a lot of hair. The doctor says it's a nine-month cycle, but she's only 12 years old. What do we do to prevent the from falling
2: out? Hello, Sandra. I'm sorry to hear about that. Um, I wonder if it might be an immune thing, um, because thyroid problems can sometimes be caused by immune problems, where the immune system can attack the thyroid gland and cause it to become less active than it should and people who have thyroid problems of immunological origin can also have the immune system going off course and attacking other things as well so maybe some of her hair loss is that or it could just be that because the thyroid is underactive this does cause hair loss anyway because people get something called um myxedema and they get two two lower levels of thyroxine in the bloodstream and if you don't have enough thyroxine then it does cause skin and hair quality to go down this should recover though with thyroid replacement therapy so if your daughter is on thyroxine which is the hormone normally made by the thyroid thyroid gland and the levels are right in her bloodstream which doctors will check with the blood test she ought to get better and feel much better and this ought to arrest the the hair falling out but if it's if it's because she's got a, an alopecia where the immune system is attacking the hair follicles then you, that won't be because of the thyroid level so i guess it's a question of asking the doctor what's the cause of the hair loss and, and then you'll know
1: thank you very much Sandra, and good luck to you uh renee in kensington hi hi really hi uh, hello to the naked scientists for once i can answer a question that the naked si- scientists can't answer congratulations <laughs> That is to the question of how do moths get inside the light bulb. A few years ago uh, in the Sunday Times, when they used to have these kinds of questions, one of the uh, readers gave the answer. And he says, It happens in the same way that the Chihuahua mounts a Great Dane and impregnates her. And that's the answer. <laughs> the same way that I- <laughs> a Chihuahua yeah. mounts a Great Dane and impregnates her. Okay. All right. Thank you very much, Renee, for sharing that. Okay. Thank
2: you. <laughs> <laughs> can see why I he thought he was going right to tell us answer. about aircraft and shadows and things, but um, yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure I am uh, any the wiser. But anyway, maybe someone can fill me in, so to speak.
1: Okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> <laughs> Shall we go to an ad break or go to Terran? No, come on, let's go to Terran, Shane. Hi, Terran. Hi, really. Hi, Um My question is about mosquitoes, and I want to know if mosquitoes get full. <laughs> You know, after they've had a good round on your body and been biting you <laughs> Well, I'd hope they get full. It has to be worth it. Otherwise, it's just yes. pain for and nothing. I think they burst, they get so full. <laughs> so that's the one question. And the other thing that I've heard about mosquitoes is they aren't actually attracted to your blood. Where people say, oh, gee, you know, I've got such sweet blood and mosquitoes all over me. It's actually your breath. And if it is your breath, what about your breath is the mosquito attracted to? And I'll listen on the radio.
2: Okay, I've never heard that Hello, parent, before. But- um The answer is mosquitoes definitely do get full. Um, They put their proboscis, their mouthparts, through your skin, probe around until they find a blood vessel. And this is a capillary, a very tiny blood vessel. And they insert their mouthparts in, and then a combination of the pressure of the blood and capillary action pulls the blood up into the mosquito. And it knows how full it is because it has stretch receptors in its stomach. These are nerves that tell how distended the abdomen is becoming. And the mosquito stops feeding by detaching its mouthparts once it is full to stop itself going bang, because otherwise it potentially could. Um, In terms of what attracts mosquitoes to people, this is the subject of intense research because malaria is spread by mosquitoes, making mosquitoes the most dangerous animal on Earth. They're responsible for more deaths than anything else on Earth. So if we can find out how to stop them attacking people and eating uh, from us, then we stop the spread of disease, and that would be a good thing. What actually attracts mosquitoes to people? Well, it's... Quite right, a combination of breath and other odours that you exude from your body surface. Mm. So there are various compounds in, in what we breathe out. They include carbon dioxide. That's a major attraction to mosquitoes. There are also other things like the ketones. These are chemicals that you produce by your metabolism that are in your breath that you breathe out that mosquitoes can smell and they follow the chemical gradient so they fly backwards and forwards sniffing using their antennae the air and they they sort of fly upstream so they're looking for the source of the smell and they fly towards where it is getting stronger from they also are sensitive to various chemicals, which usually include um, more complex, volatile chemicals that we exude from our skin. And again, they follow those to find their source. Some people are lucky enough to be endowed with a combination or cocktail of these chemicals that actually make them smell very bad to mosquitoes. Mm. Other people smell very sweet and attractive to mosquitoes. So when we go out in a summer evening here, for example, I am... Left alone, I must presumably taste awful, but my wife is bitten to death. So it could be either that I'm not so attractive to mosquitoes and she's so attractive they all go for her, or I just repel them all onto her. I don't know which it is, but scientists have now identified a cluster of these chemicals and and they're now in a position to start asking, right... Can we turn these into novel repellents to make people who are very attractive to mosquitoes smell like people who aren't?
1: Mm. <laughs> I'll really apply my mind more seriously, Chris, when choosing my uh, uh, deodorant and uh, my perfume every single day because uh, who wants mosquitoes after all? Let's take a break. You're listening to Reedy really Clubby. Eight minutes to ten o'clock, and we're taking your calls, your questions for the Naked Scientist on 021-446-0567, 11 Three o Let's go to Peter in Crown Minds. Good morning to you, Peter. Welcome. Hi, how are you? I'm very well, thanks. I'm uh, a Naked Scientist. Uh, mm-hmm. When is it too late to study for something challenging like engineering, doctorate, is our brain, like as we grow, us or something? Okay, that's very yeah. interesting. So do you reach an age where you can no longer take in new things? Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. Hello, Peter. Um, I reckon you're never too old to, lo- to take in new things, um, but... If you ask a mathematician, they'll say that you never see a successful old one. Um, they all mm-hmm. say they were definitely better when they were younger. I think there's something about maths which makes it much... Uh, easier to learn and to have the insight that leads to those leaps that connect these disparate functions and facts and figures, which it's easier to do when you're younger. But, of course, as you get older, you bring wisdom and experience to the table instead. And there are many disciplines, I think, for instance, medicine is a good example of this, where as you get older, up to a point, you get much better at your job. Uh, especially if you're doing sort of diagnostic medicine. Surgeons, perhaps because of the hand-eye coordination, right. they'll reach a peak at a certain age and then struggle a little bit more. But when it comes to bringing wisdom to the table and experience, then there are many things where the older you are, the better it becomes. When it comes to learning new things, though, it does get more difficult to learn and marshal huge numbers of facts as we get older because we just tend to, well, our brains tend to go on to autopilot more and fill in the gaps for us, making it harder for us to get interested in novelty, if you see what I mean. Mm. Um, but I, I don't think there's there's any hard and fast rule, and it's what works for an individual.
1: Absolutely. And, Peter, I don't know if you remember his story. I think it was the Sowetan that reported on this. I could be wrong. A couple of years ago, an old man who was over 80 uh, set for his matric exam. He spent years uh, studying for his high school qualification because he was deprived of an education as a young boy. And in his 80s, he finally uh, got the matric um, uh, certificate. So yeah you're never too old here's an SMS um, from um, Dan in Rodiburt. It says hi Reedy and Chris how do scientists calculate the nutritional composition of food
2: okay um, there's a number of ways of doing this one of them is that scientists know what's in food because you can work out what the chemical composition of it is you know how much sugar's there how much fat's there how much protein's there and so on and we know how much you get in the way of energy from each of those different components. So you can do a rough calculation and say, from this particular food source, you will derive the following nutrition. There are also ways of of standardising and correcting, because not everyone will get the same amount of energy from a certain food source, because some of us are better at absorbing energy than others. Um, And also, some foods in certain contexts absorb better than others, and so this is corrected for. But if you wanted to know how much energy is in substance X, then scientists use something called a bomb calorimeter. So what you would do is put your food item into this bomb calorimeter, which consists of a little tray inside a glass tube, and you burn the substance in air inside the tube, and you collect all the heat that is produced by in immersing the tube as you burn the thing in water and you measure the increase in temperature of the water, and that tells you how much energy has come out of the food. And you know how much energy you put in to light the food in the first place because you light the uh, the food item with an electrical element, and you record how much energy you have dissipated in the electrical element to get the food lit in the first place, and then you subtract one from the other. So it comes down to basic chemistry, working out what the nutrients are, knowing how much energy you get from those nutrients, and if you want to actually do discrete nutritional calculations on a food item, then you can actually do that with one of these bomb calorimeters too.
1: Very interesting. Jonathan in Greenpoint, hi. Hi. Um, tell me, uh, are there any advances in the treatment of dystonia? And what is the cause of dystonia? Dystonium. Okay. Jonathan in Greenpoint.
2: Chris? Hello, Jonathan. Uh, dystonias are where you have abnormal movements or abnormal... Um, tension, I suppose, contractions in muscles. They include things like blepharospasm, where the eyelid might move abnormally. You can also get torticollis, where the muscles that move your head left and right can go into spasm. I'm not sure where we are with actually the diagnostics of this. I mean, we know they occur. They are quite disabling for some people who get them. They can also be caused by drugs. So people who are on certain drug treatments for other disorders can get them. Um, in terms of why they actually occur in, in some people, I don't know. And I think in some cases they do go away. Um, and in other cases, people get relief from things like um, Botox. So you can't just do facelifts with Botox. Actually, you can put a bit of this... Into the muscle that's playing up and it releases the muscle by weakening it slightly. So people's symptoms get better. Um, but other than that, I don't think I can help very much. Sorry.
1: Sorry, Jonathan. And uh, somebody sent me an SMS with a word I cannot pronounce, but I hope you know something about it. It says, um, hi, naked scientist. I have a sore, I've had a sore lip, lower lip for two years. I went for a biopsy and I was diagnosed with S H E, right? Yeah. I L.
2: T I Z. Hmm. Never heard of that one. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> I, I don't know what. what no, that, that makes would me be. feel
1: better because then I don't have to learn the pronunciation. <laughs>
2: Yes, I, I'd have to look into that. I don't know. I'm sorry, Reedy. I can't help with that. Yeah. I'd have okay. to look, I'd have to look and see if, if I can find anything on that one. I haven't heard of it.
1: Okay. And then Chris, you know, from time to time, we get people, maybe they're new listeners to the show. They don't know when you started and so on, and they remain curious about what you do and who you are. Uh, and SMS says, I just want to ask, what did the naked scientist study and how on earth does his brain possibly contain so much information? Uh, it's bloody amazing. It comes through from time to time. Do you want <laughs> to indulge us, Chris? (laughs)
2: actually it's three years this year since we started doing this show do you realise that, it's gone fast hasn't it, It it's amazing Um, the answer is I started off just doing medicine and in the middle of my medical degree I then got interested in neuroscience so I did a degree in neuroscience brain and nervous system and so on and then i went back and carried on doing clinical medicine for a while at cambridge university and in the middle of my medical degree um cambridge let me do a phd as well so i did a phd in gene therapy and gene therapy by using viruses so you modify viruses so that they can go inside cells and put fresh copies of DNA into cells and I was doing this for brain cells then I went back and did some some more clinical medicine for a while and then I went back to do virology and I'm now a consultant clinical virologist in the local hospital at Cambridge University and I also teach students at Cambridge University and we also run the Naked Scientists yes. at Cambridge University. So a whole range of things.
1: Do you intend to study further?
2: <laughs> life's one long story you know when I say to people you know in my mid-30s I'm still taking medical exams because I was still taking exams until a year or two ago um to, to finish my training they're gobsmacked and I think mm. if I'd known at the age of 18 when first going to university I'd still be taking exams at the age of my <laughs> mid-30s maybe I would have thought about doing something else instead I don't know
1: ah oh, something tells me you enjoyed Chris <laughs> have a lovely weekend thanks for chatting and with you and you thank you bye reading. bye dear bye 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 really loved that and of course our conversations with chris are always available as podcasts and i'm really delighted to get all the feedback it seems you know he's just a hit and you're enjoying them we love your questions keep them coming we try our best i know there are lots of questions that are coming through that we're not able to accommodate but don't despair one day
0: thinking about your next career move in research and development then it's time to make your move to the uk